0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Byzantium and Friends, a podcast about all things Byzantine and about adjacent, related, auxiliary, and friendly fields, as well as about the meaning of words. I am Anthony, your host. Two topics that are very difficult to cover in the podcast medium are art and literature, uh, in part because it's not easy to show you the art um, in a podcast format. I can provide links, but that's not normally how people consume podcasts. And the same is true about literature. You kind of have to read it in order to be able to have a discussion about it. You know, history, by contrast, is actually constituted in the making of it, in the writing of it. Um, there's no thing that we can go look at or read that is history independently of you know, what we make of it. I'm committed to trying, though, so today we're going to be talking about literature or about some specific texts that have some very interesting things going on in them. Now, let me just say, most of you probably know that Byzantine literature has had a very hostile reception, generally, um, in Western scholarship, down to and straight through most of the 20th century, in fact. Uh, There are all kinds of uh, negative ways in which it's been portrayed, Um, as imitative, derivative, uninteresting, you know, rhetorical, and so forth. I hope to talk about this problem in some later episodes, and we're not going to be focusing on that today. I do want to say that a great deal of work has been done to counter those perceptions um, and the way that we study and read it, uh, at least among experts. Uh, I'm not sure that the kind of internal rehabilitation that we have been engaged in has made the leap from sort of technical scholarly discussions to uh, wider perception, um, not, not necessarily among you know, the general readership, the people who might read Penguin Classics or whatever, but even among scholars in other adjacent fields, that this has been going on and what its fruits have been um it's a still rather technical esoteric discussion and there are certain areas where even scholarship on Byzantine literature has not gone very far or hasn't gone at all i'm going to mention a couple of them here very briefly before landing on the one that will uh, kind of preoccupy us for the rest of this discussion so one area where i think we have a lot of work to do is in explaining why it is enjoyable to read it. (laughs) So, um, in in fact, in the past, it was very common for studies of Byzantine literature to be written by scholars who avowedly did not enjoy reading it. And and a lot of the scholarship would actually take the form of here's why I don't enjoy this. (laughs) And that was scholarship on Byzantine literature. Now, we don't do that anymore, but the pendulum has not swung to the other extreme of where you know we can openly talk, <laughs> we can come out and talk about why we enjoy reading this. Those of us who enjoy reading it, and sometimes I wonder, like, how many of us actually enjoy reading it? Like, that's that would be something uh, because in if if we can align our pleasures in consuming literature with those of the people who wrote and consumed it originally. Uh, we might be on a better track to understand why it looks the way it looks, why it was produced at all, what its goals were, and so forth. A second area has to do with a pretty fundamental mismatch between our perception of ethics and politics and most pre-modern ways of looking at those things, and specifically what is generally called virtue ethics, and in, in some cases even virtue politics. Uh, we moderns tend to look down on that as a kind of primitive and unsophisticated way of looking at things like moralizing and so forth. It, of course, infuses uh, Byzantine outlooks on everything, Um, whether they're drawing from the Roman or Christian or ancient Greek traditions um, that infuse their outlook. They were fundamentally and explicitly premised on an understanding of the virtues and how virtues play out in whatever domain each author is writing about. There's writing to a friend, uh, talking about a person's social behavior or a a political ruler's uh, uh, reign. Um, These are infused with an understanding of how virtues are supposed to shape human action. And generally, modern audiences, we are so not attuned to that way of looking at things, and we and we find it, uh, as I said, sort of rather childish, and try to get past it. What we need to do instead is learn about how virtue ethics works, because in some respects it's a sophist- m- more advanced and appropriate for human beings way of looking at uh, at the world. I'll recommend here uh, McIntyre's After Virtue and James Hankins's uh, Virtue Politics. The third and final point I will make is that we have generally failed to find ways to attract broader audiences of non-experts, even non-medievalists, non-historians to read Byzantine texts. Precisely because so much of our scholarship is historical in interest, that is we read texts looking for historical facts for the most part, and because we tend to historicize them uh, intensely uh, that is, each text is read against a very specific historical background. This person wrote that in order to do this in that year. Um, the, the, the parameters of our interpretation, the, its horizons, remain bound to very historical moments. And it's very difficult in that way to interest people in saying, hey, look, this text does this very, very interesting thing that you can use, for example, in a class about. Uh, you know, a general historical experience that um, you're you're teaching a course on, you know, the literature of pain, for example, uh, something we'll be talking about in this episode. How do you integrate a Byzantine text uh, into a course like that? In order to do that, you do have to abstract the text from its very immediate historical moment. I, I don't mean disregard that or not try to understand it, Uh, But you have to look for ways that it speaks to the human experience above and beyond um, those particular moments. Um, And if it doesn't, if a thousand years of medieval Greek literature don't manage to do that, then we should be wondering what on earth was going on (laughs) in that society that it failed to do that. It did not. It did not fail to do that at all. We have failed to find ways to make those texts speak that way. A very interesting experiment along these lines has just been performed by my guest today, Adam Goldwyn, who is a professor in the English department at North Dakota State University. He's done some very interesting work in the past on eco-criticism in Byzantine texts, but the book that we'll be talking about today is called Witness Literature in Byzantium, Narrating Slaves, Prisoners, and Refugees. And what he looks at are texts that convey the experience of sudden captivity, enslavement, humiliation, radical insecurity in the face of the arbitrary whim and power of a person to whom you've been subjected through, you know, the, the accidents of history of war and the like. One of the most interesting things that he does in this book is to use the um, literature of the Holocaust and of the transatlantic slave trade, in order to understand how those kinds of experiences are represented. Um, they, and they are radical experiences. Uh, I, I, I want you all to sort of picture for a moment what it means to be stripped of all sort of social, con- political, legal context that defined your identity. Uh, in, in in most of your life and to be thrown into a situation where you have none of the protections or even understand how th- those systems work and to be um, so vulnerable to you know the arbitrary whims and interests of other people. And he finds that experience has actually been captured in very vivid ways by people who experienced it uh, or who claim they experienced it um, throughout Byzantine history. And we'll be talking here mostly about Eustathius of Thessaloniki and the capture of his city by the Normans in the late 12th century, but also Caminiatis, uh, um, another uh, person from Thessaloniki who in the early 10th century was uh, captured when the city was taken and and enslaved for a while and taken off the, eventually to Syria to be sold as a slave or ransomed, and and he wrote accounts of, our, of his experience. Now I know that many of my colleagues, like they're their intellectual defenses would automatically go up. Like, no, we can't read Byzantine literature through the lens of, you know, any other, uh, you know, body of work that comes from a different historical context, and that we must read it only against its own historical moment. <laughs> and, well, I mean, yes, there's validity, I think, however, to all of these approaches. Um, and by erecting those kinds of walls, we precisely make it impossible for our um, you know, corpora to make the leap from our technical field to that of a broader discussion, um, and I find that uh, Adam's approach has incredible merit for at least for teaching these texts in the classroom and and exciting interest about what they're doing. Because think about it this way: so here we have a text where the narrator, first person, is explaining the the anguish of being lined up by the captors of his city and families being separated and not knowing whether he would ever see his loved ones again. And, and, and some people being chosen, okay, execute this one, this one, this one. Okay, that one we put on the ship, we take him away to sell him. Uh, women and children put over there, okay. And he provides this really vivid description of that experience. And we read that text and our reaction is, ah, does he give information about where that gate was in the wall that we can, you know, tie in with the archaeology and or what does this reveal about family structures in Byzantine society? It's like, well, yeah, but those things are all so incidental. That's not what he's primarily trying to talk to us about. Uh, what is that? What, how do you, do you describe that anguish? How do you capture it in literature? And it's not enough to just say, "Ah, rhetoric." Uh, you know, Byzantine writers were so accomplished rhetoricians that they could, you know, move you to tears. But we can see th- through that. We, you know, we're not taken in by their, you know, rhetorical techniques. And like that's a, that's a cynical reading. It is one possible and legitimate type of reading, but it's not the only type of reading. <laughs> we can actually think, wow, it's providing a very powerful account of an experience that so many other people have felt uh, throughout history. Okay, I've gone on far too long. Many thanks to Medievalist.net, as always, for reposting these episodes. Uh, Without any further delay, here is my conversation with Adam. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: So let's dive right into it. What is witness literature? Have you discovered a new genre hidden here in the corpus of Byzantine literature?
1: Right. So I I definitely haven't discovered a new corpus. Um, I guess one of the things I I think about witness literature is it's not so much a um, a genre as a sort of sensibility or uh, a way of reading. Um, Elie Wiesel, uh, the famous Holocaust survivor who wrote uh, Night, which is considered one of the first um, works of witness literature has this famous quote he says, If the Greeks invented tragedy, the Romans the epistle, and the Renaissance the sonnet, our generation invented a new literature that of testimony um, and i 'm kind of pushing back against that, saying, Well, you know these kind of texts existed before, uh, but the post holocaust kind of gave us this new reading context to hear mm-hmm. what people who have witnessed atrocity um, have been sort of saying uh, for centuries that you know until we sort of uh, engage with the problem of the post-Holocaust. We weren't listening, uh, or couldn't listen. So I think for me, witness literature, as I define it in the book, has sort of two essential components. Um, that's to be written by someone with direct firsthand participatory experience, uh, as a victim of historical atrocity. Um, and in this way, it's a bit different than what we think of as a witness, like in the modern court system, right? Right. where you're a passive, we're a passive observer of events or even like the expert witness who might have abstract knowledge, right? This kind of witness requires uh, that you were there. Um, But it's also different, I think, than what we think of as autobiography or memoir or other kinds of life writing. Um, Primo Levi, uh, an Italian Jew who survived Auschwitz and wrote another sort of uh, foundational work of witness literature, um, If This Is a Man, uh, he says that, Witness literature has to be what he calls uh, discourse on behalf of third parties, and I think this element is really important. You know, He goes on to talk about how uh, the true witness can't actually uh, narrate because the true witness is dead, um, but the witness sort of has to narrate on their behalf. So it's sort of those two things together, um, the, the being a direct participant of the events and narrating not just about your own life, uh, but on behalf of those who can't narrate for themselves. Sure. And
0: I have to say, I mean, reading your book, and in, in particular the, the chapters on the texts that I have studied the most in the past, Eustathius and Kemeniatis, that we'll be talking about today, you you do make them, you know, more moving than I had imagined they were when I read them in the past. And I have to say that, I mean, at times. I read them like as historical sources and that tends to be a dry kind of reading. And at times I read them as this category that we're trying to come to grips with of Byzantine literature that we do through rather formalized concepts of genre and and, which also tend to classify and render them dry in a way. And you're actually looking for the human experience encoded in there. And you in order to sort of tease it out and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that in order to do that, you, you're comparing them to the experiences of powerlessness and enslavement and degradation that you find in literature about the Holocaust and the slave trade. And, and, and you're doing that in order to elicit these kinds of experiences, right, from those Byzantine texts. Is is
1: that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we think about, uh, is you know it happened so long ago, <laughs> um, but the 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 Holocaust it feels so immediate. Um, but one of the things I think that these authors come back to time and time again is that uh, for them this was the subjective, affective, experiential equivalent of that. Uh, and I I just need to be always very clear at the outset. I'm not making any any sort of comparison that the right. Holocaust was as bad as or no, worse. No, no, no. Or you know I'm not I, I like very. Tried to stay away from that, but just to say, the ways that we can read the ways that we read Holocaust literature or uh, or slave narrative, African American slave narratives, can inform us uh, about these subjective experiences. And Eustathius Eustatius, um, of Thessaloniki, who um, uh, was present at the fall of, the, of that city in 1185, uh, he says something like, "You know, this was the worst catastrophe that had ever befallen anyone, and if anyone denies that or says otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll have words with them." So you know we as modern historians could say well one conquest of one city that happened in one year i mean yeah it was bad but you know compared to the holocaust you know that's a a thing we can say as historians but for eustathius you know he saw his whole world uh eviscerated in a, in a moment so he felt you know that it was the end
0: yeah so let's be clear here for the audience your your theme is not genocide <laughs> right it, it's not about numbers it's not about institutions it's not about anything like that right it's it's the way in which a very subjective experience is represented in a let's yeah, say first person narrative in a text and this could be the experience that like one person had it doesn't you don't you know, your's is not an argument of scale it's an argument of intensity and the representation of experience um and so did you, let's just be clear so that the audience knows what we're talking about. So let's dive into the texts. Um, So you mentioned Eustathius. So why don't you tell us more about who, when, and what's it about? And then maybe highlight some of the more striking uh, passages in the texts that that maybe inspired you to think about them along the lines of, uh, you know, what you found in Holocaust literature.
1: Right. So, uh, you actually did a really wonderful podcast with, uh, Belky Vandenberg. Um, yep. what was it? I, actually I was just listening to it and you talk about how you're sitting six feet apart. So it must've yes. been the, the very beginning of COVID. Yes. Uh, yes. so yes, go back and listen to, to that one. She just, she is the expert on this other half of Eustatius uh, yes, professional yes, life. Right. Um, so Eustathius of Thessaloniki was, uh, 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 lived basically through the entirety of the 12th century. I think his dates are 1115 to 1195. Um, the the 12th century um, has been described as uh, uh, the renaissance of the 12th century. So this was a time of uh, uh, increased intellectual activity, increased artistic activity. And Eustatius was born right at the heart of this in, in Constantinople. Uh, he would go on to become sort of the, perhaps the most educated man of the 12th century. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, 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 in all of sort of Europe, right? Not just Constantinople, but uh, yeah. widely read, uh, an orator, um, a professor, uh, advisor to emperors, um, and a high-ranking churchman. Um, he is sent to uh, Thessaloniki, which was then the second city of the empire, to be archbishop there. Um, and while he's there, uh, whom he calls the Normans or the Latins, decide to sack the Thessaloniki while they're there. So, I mean, it's kind of a strange that strange situation to imagine the most educated man of his time and here you know the city's being conquered in this extremely uh horrific way um he wrote you know scolia on homer, commentaries on homer he wrote all this sort of high high um works of scholarship um and the latins are at his at the gates there um uh, he talks about sort of walking through um piles of corpses uh friends that he he can't sort of see who's his friends anymore because their faces are all sort of um uh disfigured by violence uh so he i mean he talks about this sort of uh in very detailed visceral terms what an actual medieval conquest looks like um and then he delivers his experience as a as a sermon about a year later um so that's sort of who he was and yeah i think um, some of the passages that stuck out to me were these just very visceral descriptions of, um, of, of the horrible things he experienced. Uh, I mean, some of them are <laughs> quite hard to, are sort of quite hard to even, to even summon now, but uh, yeah, descriptions of, um, of uh, people being killed, limbs severed, uh, this kind of things.
0: Yeah. And the element of it that you draw out is the, <sighs> sort of disorienting experience of being put at the mercy of another person, the arbitrary whim of another person in such a sudden reversal. Um, Now, you know, I mean, had he thought about it, might have imagined, you know, that other people were living like that before. And he's a very privileged, you know, classicist and archbishop who normally is not at anybody's mercy. But suddenly he finds himself exposed to that. and, And so you bring it out. So so, what are the moments say from like Holocaust literature that uh, that gave you the key for those kinds of
1: readings? Right. So, one of the um, sort of the things that unlocked that for me was there's this passage in um, uh, Primo Levi's um, "If This Is a Man," um, where he says that killing and dying had been extraneous literary things to me, and he's actually walking through Auschwitz um, trying to recall this passage of the Canto of Ulysses from Dante. And I think it's uh, one thing. I think the sort of uh, shock that Eustathius, like Primo Levi in a way, feels is you know he's read about violence, he's thought about violence, he's written about violence, but uh, that's very different than experiencing that, and mm. I think that's where that disorientation comes from. Um, and then you know I just sort of started seeing uh, sort of very specific thematic parallels um, uh, these issues of thirst, right? Um, Primo Levi says that the worst, the worst of all these things was the, was the sharp thirst. And there's a scene where he tries, where he's about to drink the water and the, the other prisoners say, actually that's put po- that water's toxic. Don't do it. But he's so thirsty. He has no choice. Um, the starvation and the extreme pains of physical hunger, uh, the shaving of heads, the, the separation of the family separation. Mm. So, um, you know, these sort of real embodied experiences, uh, that, again, sort of a highly educated person would have read about, especially in Byzantium, where he was reading about, you know, these things in the the Trojan War. Uh, But to experience those in one's own body, uh, I think must have come as quite a shock.
0: Yeah, in fact, you um, highlight Eustathius's focus on the body and, you know, the um, the experience to it it was subject during those days. He was in captivity for a while and, and, you know, herded back and forth and here and there and stripped. And, you know, I don't know had his beard pulled or whatever. Um, so, um, you, you use the term biopolitics in your analysis to sort of foreground this. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about how that, what that means and how it works in the text?
1: Yeah. So, so biopolitics is a kind of, uh, contemporary, uh, word drawn from critical theory um specifically Michel foucault uh who talks about um the way in which the state uh and state power controls the sort of means of life and death like right who has what are the politics that govern the bios the life of a person um and i think that eustathius uh and many of these writers of what what i'm calling witness literature um focus so much on that because uh so much of what they discuss is sort of like uh no one's going to believe me if I say this, (laughs) you know, if I describe these things, no one will believe me. And, and Elie Wiesel talks about, about that at length, um, this fear of not being believed Um, because, you know, very few people have seen uh, a a newborn torn from the arms of its, of its mother Mm. and the mother's screaming and the baby's just sort of tossed recklessly into the ocean because they don't care. Right. That's a horrific and and Eustathius saw this on a, on a mass scale. Right. So how do you, you know, that's a thing that's hard to sort of grasp onto, but like, I've been hungry, you know, I've never been like starvation hungry, right? but I can kind of get a little bit of, you know, I have a body, so I can kind of get a grasp a little bit on, on what that must be like. And I've been thirsty, you know, I've never been dehydrated to the point of death uh, like they were, but I think the body gives these writers a way to um, just to give some sort of sense of what would be experienced and then leave it to our, sort of empathetic imagination to say like, okay, now multiply this by, you know, multiply my sort of like late afternoon stomach grumbling with like multiple days of eating maggot infested bread. You know, I, I think I can kind of like maybe make that imaginative leap uh, in a way that I can't for some of the other kind of atrocities. So, you know, who controls the body and how controls and how that body's controlled um, sort of marks where we are uh, in relation to the, the state Uh, Our relation to power, and again, if you think of a guy like Eustathius, this was a a a man who lived a very elite, very pampered uh, lifestyle. So here we find himself at this, we find him at this moment where, like, actually, the state will no longer protect you. Not only will the state no longer protect you, but now there's a new state that actually has no care for your body whatsoever. And I think there's an existential agony, (laughs) you know, an existential agony that comes from that. You know, you I was know, protected and now I'm not. It's not just an issue of the body, but an existential agony that comes from the treatment of the body.
0: That's a good way to put it. And I got the sense as I was reading your chapter on Eustathius that you were trying to do a couple of things. And that Eustathius, in fact, is trying to do a couple of things. The first is to be believed, like to cross the gap, right? To bridge the gap between the things that people abstractly know mm-hmm. and to get them to try to understand what it's like to feel or experience that thing, right? And like we're all in this kind of position where, like, fortunately, all this horrible stuff we experience like on our screens. Right. We see photos of wars and death and all of that. And, and sometimes perhaps we can't even handle those like I have trouble stomaching sometimes and and mm-hmm. news media have to like be very careful about what kinds of images they can actually show to the audience because you know you don't want to turn them away um, and so we have this abstract knowledge of these kinds of things but the experience of them we're very very far removed from it fortunately right yeah but in our thinking about the narrative of our lives and the lives of others there's so much that we take for granted that you just mentioned there at the end um, about like our autonomy and who makes decisions about like what we do and what we do, you know, the closest I've experienced come to experiencing what it feels like for that to be taken away was when I was in the army. And I mean, like really it was just a series of inconveniences, nothing more, <laughs> but there were other people who were deciding when I could sleep, when I could eat, when I could go to the bathroom, when I, could, you know, what I would eat and and all of that. And, It's it cuts pretty close. Like at some point you're like, wait a minute, like something has been stripped away here that I had always taken for granted. and, And imagine that at the hands of a hostile. Well, anyway, so you talk about the. And Eustathius tries to reconstruct this space that you enter when all these conventions of law and the protections of the state and your social status and all of that, when those are stripped away, what's left?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, so I think one of the things that is left is the ability to uh to write and to tell one's own story. And I think that um disciplines that have focused a lot on the um uh uh politics of oppression, right? Uh Eustathius was and, and, and John Komaniatis, these were they were, you know, the process of being captured was uh your clothes are stripped from you, your head was shaved, your beard was shaved, which for Byzantines was a all all medieval europeans as a sort of note uh, i think in um el cid where someone pulled his beard and this was a sort of outrage you couldn't endure right so you know the beard uh the clothes the starvation the hunger the family separation um all these pressures to dehumanize you uh, to strip you of your identity Mm -hmm. um but the capacity to tell one's own story right is uh, a form of internal resistance to these to these external pressures right these external pressure pressure saying you're no one you have no past you have no future you're nothing you're no one you're indistinguishable from everyone else but as long as you can uh you know it's not just a matter of controlling the outside of the body right it's a matter of uh trying to actually kind of seize the the thought mechanisms that allow you to sort of identify who you are um and i think narrating one's story or or talking about traumatic experiences is a way of uh Saying you can all this external stuff I can't control, but as long as I maintain that interiority of who I am, uh, you know, there's a form of resistance to that.
0: Yeah, because our personhood is construed in terms of all of these, you know, but you might call it externalities and you know, your, your your social status and the material aspects of your life and all that. And if that's all stripped away, um, you know, what are you? Just a body that's moved around? You know, at someone else's whim. You know, actually, now that you were saying that, I'm remembering stories where. Uh, like of you know let's say difficult encounters between men in positions of power and these extreme ascetics mm. where these kinds of threats just didn't like work very well right <laughs> all right what are you gonna do then <laughs> anyway yeah, <I> mean. <laughs> yeah yeah i remember that um so so now that we mentioned that um T- to what degree was Eustathius's representation of his experience or his own experience really coded for social class, uh, or his gender, or level of education, um, even degrees to which he may not have been aware that he was coding for those things? But occasionally, you you catch him out like this is this is a function of who he was in contrast to what he became under Norman occupation.
1: Right. I mean, I think that you know, getting back to the um sort of specifics of his biography, right? Him being the most educated man of the 12th century. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, elite of the elite. Yeah. So, you know, um, and especially when we think of it in a, in a medieval context, um, with modern witness literature, if we think again about the Holocaust, sort of there was an almost universal literacy among uh, people in the camps. Mm. Um, in a medieval context, there was very few people who could write so uh in that sense just simply having the capacity to write one's experience marked one as elite right we don't have the experience of the you know like like levy says you know uh i'm not the true witness the true witness can't speak uh, on their own behalf so uh, as being an educated as being one sort of the educated elite um uh uh that sort that definitely shapes the kind of class based consciousness that he has um and also i think um from the perspective of gender certainly uh and this is where some of the problems of rhetoric come in eustathius is very um i mean he's a very rhetorical writer in general he's a very elegant and sophisticated writer but sometimes uh when he's writing about his own experience the kind of rhetorical elements uh by which i mean the sort of artificial elements fall away um but when he writes about women it's very it's very much in a sort of conventional i don't want to say rhetorical mm. conventional way mm. uh virgins were raped um Young brides lamented being separated from their new husbands. Uh, young mothers cried at, as they were being torn away from their babies. I mean, all of this is um, sort of historically verifiably true. But stock, uh, but stock, absolutely. Right. So they, that sort of authentic, you know, like, what was a woman's experience of this? Yeah, we can't, we can't know. We can only know what it's filtered through. Right. Uh, what Eustathius says about it, um, and unfortunately, there are uh, there's no sort of female Eustathius.
0: Right, yeah, because I can imagine that you know women would have had very diff- different kind of experience uh, of that event, uh, but I don't think he had much
1: access to it. Yeah, especially um, you know being a churchman.
0: Yes, uh, but you know now I, you know, not about gender, but I just remembered that Eustathius freed his slaves in his will. Mm. We have his will. And he says he he actually has an anti-slavery argument uh, that might even have some vague Stoic roots. I actually remember Charles Brand was working on this uh, before he died, but I don't think he ever published anything. Um, that I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe Saeftis had a kind of uh, awakening about about that. Um, but uh, so you mentioned you know rhetoric uh, in 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 that sense. Um, actually. Let, I want to get your reaction to like the way in which this text has been traditionally used by scholars. And I mentioned a couple of ways, you know, in the beginning Um, and you know, what, have you gotten any pushback um, in any kind of initial presentations of your readings from, you know, Byzantinists? Uh, Because, because, I mean, to be, um, to be clear, the text is usually um, read as his historiography, even though, yeah, it's in the form of a sermon, but it's a narrative of, a, of an event that happened. And so historians rely on it a lot, like I can tell you that, that we do, right? In the late 12th century, it's a key source. And so it's, there's a premium placed on its historicity and Eustathius, as a reporter. Um, and so did, how does your reading in, interface with that kind of use of the text or disrupt it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great question. In fact, I think most of the pushback I've gotten has been from the kind of um, position that we as scholars, that maybe that you state this was sort of like us, uh, an uh, an empiricist scholar. Uh, And I think that you're absolutely right to call it sort of like, um, you know, mining the past for facts. Data mining, yeah. Data mining. Uh, And I mean, certainly it has facts in it, Sure. right? <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that Eustathius um, focuses on is, you know, to, that the, his concern with absolute cert, with absolute truthfulness, because the events themselves are already so outlandish or so, you know, incredible in the sense of difficult to believe that, uh, you know, he has to have an absolutely rigid adherence to truth um, in doing that. Um, but he was also, you know, he was there uh, and that, that, that affected him. So I think, you know, if he had wanted to just write a piece of historical a historical narrative he could have but he didn't he included um so much about his own interiority how he felt how he experienced these things so i think it's almost uh uh if we're going to use him for our purposes then we need to make sure that we're also listening to him you know if we're using him on our if we're reading him up for what we want we owe it to him to read it on his terms as well what did he want us to get from that and I think you know the events that he describes are are awful and we talked sort of a little bit earlier about um you know how we ourselves don't have that much you know thankfully don't have maybe personal direct experience of these kinds of events um, and one of the things that uh, uh uh some of these scholars and writers of witness literature is they just say like don't look away right just 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 keep looking um, and I think that it's hard and it's, it's almost easier to say, well, like, let's look at Eustathius and say, well, what was the um, uh, uh, spacing of uh, defensive formations within Thessaloniki in the second wave of the attack? Yes, yes. Right? Like, it's a kind of looking away. Yeah. Uh, almost. Um, and I think it does remind us of our own precarity. Right? Uh, Eustathius, uh, I think scholars in particular identify with Eustathius. He's a lot like us. <laughs> so if this could happen to him, you know, like how safe are we really? I mean, this was the ivory tower of the ivory tower this guy was living in. Yeah. Uh, and this happened to him. So I think there's an element of of our own precarity. Um, and it's easier just to sort of like not look at that. Um uh, uh the, the sort of one of the original scholars of the of witness literature of the Holocaust was uh uh Dory Lobb. And um There's a scene that is described in the the book where um, an Auschwitz survivor says there were three smoke. There was, I remember these three smokestacks and these scholars were saying, well, actually there's only two. So this witness doesn't know what that, you know, Mm. this witness doesn't know what they're talking about. But in fact, they're offering a different kind of subjective truth that might not match with facts, but we can't say that, but what does it mean that this person experienced the past in this way? Right. I mean, Mm. just because it's not, Empirically verifiable doesn't mean it's not true, so I think that you know that complicates things for sort of positivist empiricist historiography um, where things that we can't prove are true to him right <laughs> and, yeah and, and that shapes his, to... that shapes his response
0: sure I mean from the standpoint of you know someone who went through a long classics phase um, I have classics in my background I can say that historical narratives. Like, it's much more common in classics to read historical narratives that way, Herodotus, Thucydides even, and so forth, that is as very, very constructed representations that, for the sake of argument, like for heuristic reasons, you start by reading it as if it were a work of fiction. Like, it's mm-hmm. a total representation, right? And and so you try to understand the, the axes along which it's composed and its basic concepts and so on. While knowing that, yes, it does have some kind of, you know, epistemic relation to, you know, external reality and so on. But like in the 90s, that didn't matter so much. Right. (laughs) Right. So you could read the text that way and try to understand them as compositions um, before, if ever, you got into the nitty gritty of, you know, the historical data mining. Um, But in Byzantine studies, that hasn't happened much or at all, especially with texts that we lean on so heavily for our facts. And so I I think that the problem goes a little bit deeper. It's not that we look away even. Like, I read about the Holocaust, not what you call Holocaust literature, but like historical studies, because I'm now like more of a a historian, right? Like more of a historian. And I know the kinds of things where I my mind wants to look away, like I there I, mm-hmm. I know where we're getting to a point where I want to look away. That never happens with Byzantine texts, right? I mean, unless right. you're getting into some long discussion of the Trinity and and so, <laughs> and the energies and so forth. Okay, but that's a different reasons. Um, and the reason it never happens that is, I'm never like oh, now I'm going to have to look away, is because I think I've been trained to read it. As rhetoric, that is what we were talking about earlier, kind of stock things. Mm-hmm. And this concept of rhetoric, that is, that the text has been pre formatted according to a formula that Eustathius learned in the schools, right? And in mm-hmm. textbooks, I think that predisposes us to overlook any, the, the, either the more idiosyncratic or the more powerful moments. And see the, and our reaction would be like, "Wow, what a spectacular rhetorical <laughs> display!" Right. Rather than, "Wow, what a wrenching experience." Is that yeah. right?
1: Yeah, it's it's actually funny that you mentioned classes because part of the like sort of deep roots of this project was uh, I was a graduate student. We were reading Thucydides, and there's a, a passage where Nikias is in Sicily, and he sends a letter back to the Athenians. And he says, you know, uh, back in Athens, saying like, "Help me out with I need more ships and men," and he sort of says like, "I'm suffering from like a debilitating, extremely painful kidney kidney disease right now," yeah. uh, but like we're losing, and you know, and I remember reading this te- this text in class uh, and sort of like doing a, you know, this is a dative that corresponds with you know, like very syntactical yeah. sort of, and I'm like, but this guy is like dying of a, like a crippling kidney ailment, and you know before the invention of anesthesia, like yes. the, they, the middle ancient medieval people suffered a lot of physical pain <laughs> that we can't really imagine either. Mm. Um, and so it, I just sort of like walked out of the class in the days thinking like, you know, how, how come we're sort of not treating the, the sort of like human, human element of what's happening. This is texts. This, this is literature that's coming to us through pain. Um, and i think yes you're absolutely right in in Byzantium we often think of rhetoric as being synonymous with artifice or Mm. with inauthenticity or as a way of um, you know artfully dodging something Uh, but one of the things that comes up again in the prologue to Eustathius uh, uh, i mean being such an elevated and um, uh, highly educated rhetor uh, he's very well aware that he's using these rhetorical figures and in the prologue, he's, he's always saying things like, you know, how, how can I write this? The, there's, no, there's no good word for what I'm describing here. Uh, I'm going to try and describe these events, but, you know, I have to, what style should I use? If I use this elevated style, they won't, it's too right. formal. And if but... I use this basic style, it's... So I think if we think of rhetoric as, you know, the way through which we've pre-established emotional networks can be conveyed, uh, it doesn't See, take away from their truth. It's how you convey truth and emotion is through sort of conventional phrasing.
0: That's right. But see that exact same thing is what they say at the beginning of like every imperial <laughs> oration. Right. And so we're predisposed to think, well, this is sort of either insincere or formulaic. Cause yeah. none of us believe that, you know, Isaac, the second Angelos is just so great that, you know, <laughs> words can't describe and so forth. Um. And, and there he, you know, they, I think he, fell into his own trap like he 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 predisposed eh, anyway you know i
1: you're right and i think that part of it uh part of it requires um i don't even know how to describe it a willful a willful part on the reader to take them at face value you know which is something we're not trained to do like we're trained especially historians right we're trained to say well eustathius he, he describes in this way, but we actually know from the archeology span that slightly something different, right? We're sort of trained to, right, um, right, right, to right. sort of like see through the sleight of hand, to sort of penetrate through the surface uh, level to find out what they're actually saying. But I think there's some part of, you know, what, what witness literature requires as a, as a reader, as a, as a mode of reading, right? Is for us to sort of willfully take them uh, at face value. <laughs> and I think that's really hard. Yes. No it's, it always makes us feel like naive fools.
0: <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. And and I think it's to your credit that you both take the texts at face value while also analyzing them in a very theoretical way. And and that's difficult to do because you you're trying to access the truth that is being conveyed in the face value rhetoricity of it. And and th- that's, it's difficult to juggle all of those things. Let's move on. Let's get okay. to, let's turn to Kaminiatis and tell us, you know, who, when, and about what, and I'm, I'm guessing it matters or not that some people <laughs> believe that the text is a 14th century forgery
1: right right so yeah okay let's put the 14th century forgery part let's put a pin in it let's talk about who he is first um so in 904 so about 300 years uh before eustathius who was again 1185 uh when Thessaloniki was sacked prior um in 904 um uh by actually a greek a greek-born convert to islam who came back as a kind of pirate named leo of tripoli uh he sacked the city um and took, um, Kamaniatis says, I think 20,000 slaves. Um, uh, Kamaniatis was educated. Um, he was a sort of mid-level church bureaucrat, um, but not nearly on the sort of, not nearly at the level of of Eustatius of Thessaloniki, sure. um, sort of a mid-level, mid-level bureaucrat. Um, and uh, he's captured. They're all har- they're all, all the captives are corralled into the harbor of Thessaloniki, which is one of the most harrowing scenes i think in all of literature and again these descriptions of uh, families being torn apart um people being killed um is captured sort of on a tower uh, and he's sort of led down through the the long streets of thessaloniki and for anyone who's been to thessaloniki you can imagine actually the uh, the Mm -hmm. walk right from the top of the upper castle down this long hill to the harbor um and he's seeing you know uh, disfigured bodies, and he's seeing uh, you know scenes of rape. He's seeing burning buildings. Um, he describes sort of you know horrific stuff, and he himself is constantly in fear for his life. There's one Ethiopian he describes who's like always trying to stab him as he's sort of you know walking under guard yeah. because the the guards um, wanna, wanna rant, want to want to rant. He says we have money buried, so he, they want the money. But this Ethiopian just just really wants to kill him. Doesn't care about the money. So, as he's walking, he's constantly trying to stab uh, Comunautes as he's walking down. Um, and then Comunautes gets put on a slave ship. Um, he describes how he's um, in chains on the slave ship. Uh, he talks about uh, this lice infestation, but they can't scratch their heads because they're in manacles. Uh, they're deposited at a slave ship, uh, at a slave camp in Tripoli. Um, and there he meets a man named Gregory, Gregory of Cappadocia, who was another uh, prisoner from a different raid. And Gregory gets taken to Antioch. Um, and what we have is a letter from John Kaminatis to Gregory of Cappadocia uh, in response to a letter that we don't have that Gregory wrote to John. Uh, so John Kaminatis' letter says, I'm writing in response to, to your letter. Um, you asked you know, how we came to this uh, and what our fate will be from here and how we arrived in this current situation. And that's the sort of um, backdrop for Kaminatis' description of his, of his life. Um, so many people think that this is a forgery, <laughs> a, a 14th century forgery. Um uh and many of these arguments are again sort of like empiricist historicism. Yeah. yeah. How how you know what are the mechanics of um letter writing and letter sending in you know slave camps in the 10th, in the early 10th century? Um I think that there's a fairly simple answer, which was they wanted the ransom. So it was in their interest to make sure that ransom letters Mm -hmm. got sent out. Um, So one of the things that, I mean, I kind of think that Kamanyatis used this, um, uh, the genre of the oppressor, right? Like write a ransom note, but he used it in a way that reinforced his own sort of sense of identity and who he was by writing something really uh, both harrowing and profound. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a little bit of the background of, uh, and also I guess there's a second point, which is, uh, and this is, uh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe more controversial or f- falsifiable, but I'm also not sure it matters because uh, if one is actually uh, having this experience or if one is writing um, to emulate the voice of someone who had that experience, the end result is so, could be so similar that we still get access to what a Byzantine must have felt like as a slave or what a Byzantine must have felt like it would have felt like to be a slave. So either way, we're getting some insight into uh, the interiority of Byzantine slavery.
0: Yeah, and enslavement of free Roman citizens in Byzantium. And this is a topic that I've covered in previous podcasts with Noel Lensky on slavery and um, with uh, Alexander Sarandis on raids. And e- either time you place the text, whether in the early 10th century or in the 15th, I think, those were both periods when very large numbers of sort of even urban free citizens were being taken captive and enslaved, mm-hmm. whether by the um, Arab raiders or the Turks or, you know, Venetians or whatever. Um, and in, in very large numbers, like this was a social experience, right? A lot of mm-hmm. people experienced this sort of thing. Um, and so, and by the way, I'm are personally not convinced of the arguments for a later date, and they tend to be very technical. Like, well, it mentions this office, which right. is not attested until the next century. And it's like, well, unless it's attested here. I mean, anyway, whatever. Um, so, to what category of modern literature do you compare Kameniati's account? Now, what are the common features?
1: Right, so the text that I I spend the most time comparing um, Kamagnatis to is uh, the interesting narrative, the life of Alaudah Equiano, which was one of the most influential African-American slave narratives um, published in 1789. Um, And one thing that uh, really grabbed me about that comparison is what we've just been talking about, um, this idea that this never really happened, these people didn't exist. Uh, And this was actually sort of really central to the reception of um, Equiano's own uh, autobiography when it appeared. There was a whole variety of sort of like book reviews and newspapers, uh, you know, saying all this is false; it never happened. Um, And one of the things that uh, 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 sort of African African American studies has pointed out is the you know the sort of book history, uh, not just the narrative itself, but uh, many African American uh, slave narratives had images of the slave uh, of the enslaved person uh, on the on the book you know, and, and Frederick Douglass was famously the most photographed man of the 19th century to say mm. like, well, you might not trust this literary documentation, but hey, here's an image, mm. <laughs> right? That's, and, uh, and in the case of um, Equiano, they, they, they often had um, uh, sort of white validators, right? So there would be long signatories of prominent white people um, uh-huh. at the beginning of these books. So for instance, the, uh, Equiano's um, interesting narrative was uh, the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of York. Uh, had signed sort of the frontispiece as sponsors of this book. Mm. Um, So I think there's an interesting sort of parallel in the way that, you know, many of these writers were thinking to themselves, like no one's going to believe me. And here we have modern scholars saying, well, it's probably a later forgery, (laughs) you know? So again, like my willful, Mm. you know, I had to will my, I made myself willfully naive to say like, it might be a forgery, but let's just like do a thought experiment. If it, uh, if it is real, what can we, Mm. you know, what does it show us if it is real? Like, Let's think i don't need to dismiss the issue of whether it's not real if it's not real then that's a thing for historians to debate but like what happens if we think it is real um and i think you know again when we think about um when what makes equiano's narrative so um so powerful is it's one of the few uh, that actually describe the middle the middle passage so um most slave narratives were written by um enslaved people born in the americas but equiano was actually born well, there's actually a modern debate that says he was actually born in North, uh, North Carolina and the Middle Passage part was a falsification. But for our purposes, <laughs> uh, uh, he, was, he was born in what's modern day Benin and was kidnapped as a child, uh, transported along with, he carried with his sister um, to the coast and there they're separated. Um, he's transported across the Middle Passage. And so, you know, seeing that it's one of the only places in literature where we get to actually see the inside of a slave ship and so it's something like, that, that's very similar with, with Kaminyatis. We know these slaves were being transported by ship vast distances, um, but there's no other medieval Greek source yeah. that can show us the inside of a, a slave ship, or that can show us the affective, subjective experience of what it was like to be transported. And I think uh-huh. that that's among the most yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's a powerful, it's a powerful passage. And, you know, going back to sort of our earlier discussion of um, like, no one would read Elie Wiesel's night and say like, well, and this is how long the electrified wires were on the edge of Auschwitz. It's <laughs> like, you can find that in there. Yeah. But if you're, if you're sort of measuring concentration camp uh, architecture, it's like, you're kind of missing some really central element to what's happening in yeah, that text. Yeah. You're missing the point. And so I think, you know, the same with the same with um, Kaminatis.
0: So why do you focus in your reading of Kaminatis on the theme of selection? So what does that mean and how does it appear in his text?
1: Right. So, you know, (laughs) as I was sort of trying to push back against, as we've been discussing this sort of empiricist, uh, you know, what are the facts that we can get from this text? So I really sort of wanted to sort of focus in on the most uh to say like actually there's really horrific painful stuff that's going on in in this text um and selection was the uh uh, selection with a k and i spell it with a k in the book is the is the sorting process um that was used uh in nazi concentration camps so when you arrived at the camp uh you would be sorted by gender um you would be shaved you'd be given you know uh new clothes uh, then you'd be sort of lined up and the concentration camp guards would say you live you die you live you die uh, you go to this, you go work in this area, you go work in that area. Um, and that's, that was selection and the, and the inmates talk about even during, you know, during their incarceration, um, they would wake up in the mornings and there'd be some mornings they would have selection and they would say you off to the crematoria, the rest of you back to work. Um, uh, and in the African-American slave, the African slave context, there was a similar location. It was called the Barracoon, which was sort of the holding, the holding prison on the African coast. Where they would decide who gets shipped off and where um who gets sent back um and this sort of uh this this moment is the moment where uh uh foucault calls it the moment of sovereign decision right where you sort of fully come to realize uh someone else has complete power over your life and death uh and that's that moment kind of causes a uh a kind of rupture right i mean again like something that we you know thankfully haven't don't have to can't have an experience of but uh to imagine the trauma of of that moment you know so for me that moment of sovereign decision just sort of crystallizes the stakes of of what i'm trying to of what i was trying to sort of highlight um in these texts that these are texts um in which people are suffering the extreme extremes of emotion uh watching the entirety of their previous world sort of uh collapse in an instant And sort of grappling with the question of like, well, what does that mean now?
0: Yeah. Um, So I remember Leonora Neville in her book on gender in Byzantium, actually the first episode that we recorded for this podcast. um, She talks a lot about Kaminiatis and his concern, among other things, in his narrative to maintain his gender dignity in Mm -hmm. a way, right? Like to, uh, in various ways, show that he's kind of a little bit sort of aloof or sort of capable of stoically withstanding all of this and, and all that. Um, so do, do you see that also in the narrative? And what other things is he trying to accomplish? What's he trying to tell his reader about himself going through these experiences?
1: Right. So one of the things that I think is really uh, fascinating about uh, these texts, again, is this sort of aspect of interiority reading them is reading the thought process of someone going, sort of processing before our eyes, the, uh, you know, a, a world altering trauma. Uh, so I think we see that in Kaminyatis. Um, Kaminyatis sort of has these passages where it is very objective. Uh, he says, you know, and then fathers were separated from children. And, and you know, there was, a, there was a, a particular father whose children were sold into slavery. And you're like, wait, those were your children. <laughs> right and like the shock of that realization for the reader right he's not talking in an abstract way he's talking in uh, about himself and i think there's a way of reading that psychoanalytically of sort of like how is he trying to tell a story that's horrifically traumatic uh and there's an element of dissociation there um and i think Hmm. also that there's an element of uh you know we as um if we think about the sort of the contemporary novel you imagine someone's just sort of sitting and writing in a, you know, like, you know, you're Jonathan Franzen sitting at a coffee shop, sort of like imagining what happens to their character next. Um, But the location of the writing of a letter from a prison camp, uh, I think, you know, belies the idea that there's a consistent voice. So I think one of the things that I find intriguing about Kamenati is is the way he's sort of describing things objectively. And then he'll say, oh, sorry, I've been talking about this too long. He's describing Thessaloniki, right? Uh, What it used to be like he says, oh, I've been narrating too long. Pain for the loss of my homeland has made me lose the thread of my narrative. Okay, let me get back to this other thing that's happening now. Mm -hmm. Um, And he kind of constantly, he has these sort of authorial interruptions. So there's like a uh, sort of uh, what we would recognize as a a historiographical voice, right? Something that we would find in Skilitsis or or, um, the first parts of Hunyatis or something like this. Mm -hmm. But then there's these jarring uh, intrusions (laughs) like by this guy suffering emotional pain and we're like okay dude like go back go back into your i don't know what to do with this part i'm just gonna like get back to the historical thread but he he brings up these uh you know his emotions keep the mask the mask of the historic of the historiographer keeps cracking and we see this person suffering and you know we see something quite similar in um in Nikitas he says you know and now i'm writing from this and i'm so mad at everyone and i'm you know, I'm in this refugee camp far from Constantinople, and uh, he actually goes back and revises portions of his, of his text. So, you know, the idea that these texts were created in an objective way, um, you know, kind of belies the empiricist positivist notion that, in fact, these were, these were texts um, written in the moment uh, from the perspective of a person who, you know, had, had Nikita Skoniatis not been at the conquest of Constantinople, not been driven away as a refugee, not been turned away by his former wealthy patrons, his history would have looked very different. Yes. And so, you know, what, what's the fact? <laughs> you know?
0: Yes. So you mentioned Koniatis and we're almost out of time here um briefly tell us some of the other texts that you talk about in the book just so people can know in case they are interested more in those texts than the two that we've discussed so you mentioned Honiatti so the his flight and exile from Constantinople what else
1: right uh and then one of the i think those are the three main sort of like what we categorize as non-fictional texts yeah. <laughs> um but then there's a genre uh, a 12th century genre of the it's called the komnenian novel right uh, works of fiction produced um under the patronage of Komneni and these are works of fiction, uh, and I actually um, write about them in, in the context of uh, Holocaust fiction, you know, novels about the Holocaust, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. and also in terms of African American literature. Um, I talk about Roots, Alex Haley's Roots, and he described it as faction, right, as sort of mix of fact and fiction to get yeah. to you know an actual truthfulness. So while these authors were in Constantinople and they themselves never experienced the things that they're describing the fictional characters in their novels um, are often enslaved, um, they're freed, uh, so they can give a sort of more rounded portrait of, uh, and we actually get actual women, women slaves in those texts. Mm -hmm. Again, it's women's, it's fictional women narrated by men. So it's not an actual, you know, woman's slave narrative, but given the the Byzantine archive we have, it's about as close as we can get.
0: Right, right. So these are the, kind of familiar story of you know boy meets girl girls abducted by pirates
1: (laughs) yeah that'll 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 chestnut
0: (laughs) all right uh so thank you adam uh i i have to say this was one of the most interesting and sort of engaging uh readings of byzantine texts that i've come across in a long time
1: thank you i appreciate that and uh
0: yeah, I don't know how you managed to you know, do this, uh, but it's not something that I think the field, in its usual kind of uh, operations, would have produced. And and clearly, um, you were inspired by you know reading literature, very very broadly from you know all, all over the world in order to do it, uh, which is something that we should be doing, I think, rather than keeping things with you know in a tight narrow contained box. So so thanks for that.
1: Thank you.
0: Appreciate that. All right. Bye and take care.